J.C. Ryle once said, Christ's love toward us and not our love towards Christ is the true ground of expectation and true foundation of hope. In just the past few years, as you know, in our country alone, we've experienced not only deep political divisions, but at times even violent and destructive social unrest, abject fear of an unknown future with viruses and vaccines and variants, uh, involvement in foreign wars, and of course the economic fallout that has followed all of that, which has fragmented and fractured our country to the point that at times it feels like the divide between large segments of our society is growing wider by the day. And the truth is, for some of these questions, there are no easy answers, which I think is one of the reasons we can't seem to find any common ground. In fact, the divisiveness in our culture has never been deeper, at least in my lifetime. And to be honest, there are days when the differences seem irreconcilable. And yet, as fragmented and fractured as we seem to be, there's one thing we can all agree on. One thing that every single one of us longs for. It's, the, it's the, the common denominator among us, no matter your country, creed, or political persuasion, whatever your background or current status is, what levels the playing field, no matter who you are or where you come from or what you believe, is our desperate need for hope. Every single human being needs hope. Of course, we look for hope in lots of different places. Some people uh, in their income, their material wealth, some in their physical health, some, some hope in what they can produce or achieve based on their own talents and abilities. Uh, some people look for hope in human relationships, right? Some hope in the systems of this world, education, government, business, and, and so on. At the end of the day, everyone wants to have hope in something, and most people, I think, want to hope in something beyond themselves. And yet, when the things that we place our hope in begin to fail, we become disquieted by fret and fear and uncertainty, and when that happens on a large scale, as we've been experiencing for the past couple of years or so, deep divisions are often created at a societal level, and of course, all of that uh, gets manifested in a lot of terrible behavior that affects a lot of people. But do you know, most of the cynical, bitter, even hurtful behavior that we're seeing across the culture today is not because people want to hate, it's because they want to hope. The problem is the very people and institutions they've placed their hope in have failed them and so they lash out at other people and institutions out of hopelessness, not hatefulness. And it underscores our desperate need for a hope that never fails and never fades, one that is unaffected by our flaws and failures, one that, that cannot be overturned by elections or overrun by angry mobs, a hope that is immune to every virus and disease that ravages the human body and plagues the human heart, a hope that does not rise and fall with financial markets, but rests assured in the unchanging nature of an almighty creator, a hope that transcends this world and anything it can ever do to us or for us. It's what the Apostle Paul referred to as our blessed hope in Titus 2.13, the hope that the author of Hebrews says anchors the soul in Hebrews 6.19, and the hope that David said his soul clings to 
in Psalm 63, 8. Now look, for the Christian, our hope has a name. A name that is above every other name, Philippians 2.9, a name that one day every person we've ever placed our hope in will bow to and confess as Lord, Philippians 2.11, the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12, the name that even demons must obey, Luke 10.17. It's the name that signs and wonders are performed in, Acts 4.30, the name that is great in might, Jeremiah 10.6, the name through which we're justified, sanctified, and washed clean, 1 Corinthians 6.11, the name that is a strong tower, Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Revelation 22.13, who was and is and is to come, Revelation 1.8. He is the uncreated, unequaled, unchanging King of all kings and Lord of all lords, and he is the only hope for this world. His name is Jesus Christ. So look, if your soul is not clinging to him today, then uh, the question is, what are you clinging to? What, what is your hope in? What are you counting on being there for you when this world isn't? Because the hope of Christ isn't just something that you believe in, it's something that you cling to. Whether you realize it or not, it's everything your soul longs for, and yet it can only be found in Jesus, which is why he came to this earth in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and yet unbelievably profound way. He didn't come to bring a new religion to this world. He came to bring a new hope to this world, the only hope there is. See, and that's what this story is all about as we pause our series in Revelation. As most of you know, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, uh, which is the story of the second coming of Christ. We've paused that to celebrate these next couple of weeks the first coming of Christ, Emmanuel, our hope. And, and this is really just an introduction today to the story which we'll be reading through together in full next week. The story of a poor, young Jewish girl, a peasant from a place so insignificant that it led Nathaniel to ask, can anything good come out of Nazareth, John 1, And yet out of that place, and more specifically out of the womb of that poor, seemingly insignificant girl without a future, came the greatest man this world has ever known. You understand, until that moment, Mary had very little to be hopeful for. And yet Mary's story is all of our story because despite the bleak outlook for her future, the difficulty of her circumstances and rejection from the world, God not only filled Mary with his hope, but he used her to deliver that hope to the rest of the world, which is exactly what he's been doing in and through his people ever since. So let's turn to this very strange and yet stunningly beautiful story of the hope of Christ come to earth in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and yet unbelievably profound way. Luke chapter one, we'll begin by reading the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke's intention from the beginning 
is to tell the story about the hope of Christ come to earth. And yet he also understands that if you can't accept this first part of the story, as incredible as it is, well then you'll never accept the rest of the story. So right from the start, he emphasizes to Theophilus and to everyone else who would ever read this, that what he's saying is absolutely reliable, accurate, and trustworthy, right? Because if this gospel is nothing uh, more than folklore and fantastic stories, well then again, we have nothing to put our hope in, which Luke is well aware of. And so if he's going to make these fantastic claims about Jesus, then he needs to first establish the validity of his own testimony. And we know, of course, from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4.14 that uh, Luke was a physician, which in and of itself would suggest an attention to detail and the need for accuracy in his observation and reporting simply because of his vocation. And we also know from that same chapter that Luke is a Gentile, which at, at first may seem like a strike against him, at least in the first century Jewish community, and yet the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, or the book of Acts, which by the way, is the second volume to Luke's gospel. In fact, uh, those two scrolls or books originally traveled around to all of the early churches as volumes one and two of the same work, the same book. And so together they comprise about 28% of the New Testament, which means Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other individual author which certainly speaks to his significance and influence in the early church. Also worthy of mention here is the length of the prologue to his gospel account, these verses we just read, because it's one long sentence, right? In English class, we'd have been in trouble, right? It's sort of like a long run-on sentence, but in the first century, as particularly writers in the Mediterranean world, uh, to write an, a lengthy opening statement was typically how you would communicate to the reader right from the beginning that this was a serious, well-researched piece of literature. And then on top of that, Luke explains in verse 2 that just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, referring to the stories about Jesus. So Luke testifies that this information is coming directly from those with first-hand knowledge of the life of Christ, most certainly including those 12 apostles. And then in verse three, when Luke says that he has followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, that word closely in that verse, it's a Greek word, uh, akrobos, it's an adverb. It means exactly or perfectly. So Luke's making his case here that this gospel has been recorded with painstaking detail. And by the way, in support of that, we have a wealth of archaeological discovery just over the past century or so that verifies Luke's accuracy and attention to detail uh, in his writing here. So as the great scholar N.T. Wright puts it, Luke is appealing to a wide base of evidence by using not only uh, oral accounts from those who were there with Jesus, but also the biographies and gospels which were already written, and as well his own careful study of the people and places and events uh, described throughout the writing. And as a result, this particular uh, prologue by Luke is actually regarded by historians and the theologians to be among the finest Greek writing of the entire first century. So it's a true testament to his skill uh, and credentials as a writer, but th the point of all this is there's strong and abundant historical, archeological, and circumstantial evidence that this story is true, that it can be trusted. Uh, that's the hope described in its pages, that it's more than something we can believe in, it's something we can actually cling to. 
And so with that in mind, let's jump to the heart of the story, verses 26 and 27, which is not long after the angel Gabriel appears before the priest Zechariah and foretells the birth of John the Baptist, who we know now, of course, came to announce the arrival of the Christ, uh, Luke 1, 26 and 27. Let's read it together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph and of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, the same angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth, which was a tough town. It was known for corruption and low moral, a low moral standard among its residents, and living there happened to be a young Jewish girl, a virgin named Mary, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph, and uh, Jewish weddings came in three stages in the first century. There was an engagement, which was a formal agreement made by the fathers, and then betrothal, which was a ceremony where mutual promises were made to one another, and then finally, the marriage, which was typically one year later, when the bridegroom would show up at an unexpected time for his bride. And so at this point in the story, Mary was uh, betrothed to Joseph, which was not a casual agreement. In fact, to break a betrothal, the couple would have to go through the equivalent of a divorce in our modern society. So this was a firm obligation of faithfulness and commitment between Mary and Joseph and their families. Let's keep reading, verses 28 through 30. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Okay, so an angel shows up and says to Mary, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And instead of being excited or encouraged or overjoyed or amazed, John says Mary is greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Seriously? What is there to figure out? An angel shows up and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Hmm. Deeply troubling. I wonder what he means by that. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense when you first read it, but listen. When you consider the fact that in the first century, the lowest class of citizen there was, uh, there, that there was was a woman. In fact, the only uh, class of citizen considered to be lower than a woman was a peasant woman. And the only citizen lower than a peasant woman was a peasant girl. And the only citizen lower than a peasant girl was a peasant girl from Nazareth. See, it makes a lot more sense when you consider that this young peasant girl from Nazareth who has grown up her entire life in a culture that has taught her that she is nearly worthless, not just a second-class citizen, but the last class of citizen, not someone to be taken seriously or regarded highly or listened to or valued or counted on to contribute anything great to the rest of society. It actually makes perfect sense that when an angel of the Lord shows up, are you kidding me? That, that in and of itself would be, of course, mind-boggling enough. But on top of that, he shows up to tell Mary, not her father, 
Not her mother, not her fiance, not any one of the hundreds of other far more important people in her town or in her life. He shows up to tell Mary that she is favored by God. It's no wonder she's greatly troubled. It's no wonder she's scared out of her wits because obviously this is a colossal mistake. You've got the wrong person. I can't be favored by God. I've never been favored by anyone in my entire life. I'm Mary, a nobody peasant girl from Nazareth. What could this possibly mean? Because there's no way it means what it sounds like. That God actually favors me? No way. No way. And of course, the angel sees Mary shaken to her core, and he reassures her that it's not a mistake at all. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He has to convince her. And the reason, listen, the reason this part of the story really should hit you as hard as it hit Mary is because he feels the exact same way about you. God favors you. He does. Look, uh, God's disposition toward Mary doesn't just apply to Mary because what Gabriel is describing to Mary, the relationship between the hope that is Christ Jesus and the one to whom that hope is given, beginning with Mary and then on to all the people after her, regardless of race, age, gender, status, or position, no matter who you are, no matter what's in your past, no matter what your upbringing was like, no matter what's going on in your life right now, when you receive Jesus Christ, you are favored by God. This is the hope for us in this story because Mary, who's about to receive inside of her the hope of the world represents in many ways every believer and follower of Christ who would ever come after as we receive within ourselves the hope of the world when we submit our lives to and receive Jesus Christ. Luke says, hey, don't take my word for it. Listen to Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, who has just come from the presence of the Lord, which means he's speaking with authority from the Lord as he explains that everything we hope for has been provided for in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating, and yet unbelievably profound way through a young virgin peasant girl from Nazareth. And yet as strange as it is, the way that Jesus came to the earth, the way that he comes to us, this is the hope that our souls cling to, must cling to, the reality, the truth that we must accept that everything our hearts long for, everything our souls thirst for, everything our flesh faints for as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, as David said when he was hiding from Saul in the wilderness, all of that is provided for when you have the Christ, the hope of the world living inside of you. This is the indescribable favor of God in your life, the fact that just as he chose Mary, he chose you and he continues to choose you day after day moment after moment breath by breath he chooses you over and over again not because of what you've done but because of what he has done that's why it's a hope unlike any other in this world because it's not dependent upon what we do thank god it's dependent upon what he's already done the apostle paul said it like this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before any of this was here, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Just as Mary was chosen, You've been chosen to receive Christ as he dwells in us and us in him. This is the favor of God upon us, which, listen, uh, also brings with it all of the blessings, the life in abundance that you can only experience when you're in Christ. And so I know it sounds arrogant to some. Uh, In fact, it's becoming less and less popular for Christians to talk about the favor and blessing of God that only his children can experience. It's still true. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. In Acts 4, 12, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Galatians six ten, Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In John 17, 9, Jesus prays to the Father. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. The undeniable truth is there's indescribable favor and blessing that is exclusively available to believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Hear me, I'm not talking about a false uh, doctrine or some kind of material prosperity gospel. I'm talking about the abundant life that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And not only is it important for us to understand and and admit that to ourselves, but it's important that we explain it to the rest of the world. Of course, with compassion and honesty and grace and humility. Listen, even if it offends them, because the the alternative is, is leading people to hell. Right? Don't, don't be afraid to tell people the truth, that no matter who they are, what they've done, where they've come from, or what their life is like right now, there is hope for them, real hope, lasting, eternal hope to be found in Jesus Christ. And by the way, it can only be found in Jesus Christ. Without him, they have no hope. You have to be honest with people. This is Mary's message to the world, whether she realized it at the time or not, which means it's our message to the world. And yet, as good as that is, it gets even better. Because Gabriel not only tells Mary that God favors her, but he goes on to speak the greatest five words that any human being could ever hope to hear in their entire lifetime. The Lord is with you. He doesn't just favor you. But the God who created the heavens and the earth, he's actually right here with you, Mary. And again, as true as that was for Mary, if you're a child of God today, then it's just as true of you. Right? Whatever you're going through, whatever you may be facing in your life, no matter how alone you may feel today, you need to know that God is with you. Just before he left this earth, Jesus said to his disciples, that includes you and me, he said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The last time I checked, the end of the age hasn't come yet, which means he's with you even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you can't understand why he would be. He made a promise, 
And that promise is a hope that your soul can cling to, the hope that no matter what happens in your life, you are never, ever, ever, ever alone. You understand why? Because there are a lot of people, and I'm talking about Christians, who think because of what they've done, or how they're living, or the mistakes they've made, or are making, that God is no longer with them. Well, look, maybe if God was just beside you, or over you, or behind you, or in front of you, maybe you could somehow try and distance yourself from him. But listen, when you're a child of God, the Spirit of Christ isn't just beside you, or over you, or behind you, or in front of you. He's inside of you which means wherever you go, he's right there with you to guide you, to lead you, to protect you, sometimes to stop you or to push you, to strengthen you, to encourage and lift you up all along the way. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And what greater hope could we have than the knowledge that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of the universe, the sovereign king over all kings, the one who loved us enough to send his own son to die for us is with you because his spirit resides inside of you. Honestly, I cannot think of a better hope worth clinging to than that. In fact, without him, we're utterly hopeless. The favor that we just talked about, the blessing of God, None of that exists if he's not with us. In Exodus 33, just after the Israelites turned away from God and worshiped the golden calf that Aaron made for them, God told Moses to lead the people from the wilderness into the promised land, but that he, God, would not go with them. This is Moses' response. He said, hey, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, look, God, if you're not with us, we might as well stay out here in the wilderness with everyone else who's lost because there is no favor. There is no blessing. There is no life in abundance without the presence of God. It doesn't matter where we go or what we do or what we have or who we're with. If we don't have you, we don't have anything. If you're not with us, then we, we can only talk about you, not with you. We can only worship toward you, not in you. We can only know of you. We can't actually know you, which is exactly, by the way, what it's like for every follower of every other religion and belief system in this world. They may know all about their gods. They may worship toward their gods. They can be meticulously schooled in the knowledge of their gods, but only Christians know their God. The God, the one and only true God, because he is Emmanuel. He's God with us, and he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit so that he's with us now and tomorrow and forever. And I'm not going to apologize for that truth. I'm not going to suppress that truth in order to spare somebody's feelings because we, you and I, are the harbingers of that truth. Just like Mary shared the hope of Christ with the world, it's our job to share the hope of Christ with this world. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm talking about being honest. We really should stop pretending to care about people when we're not even willing to tell them about the hope that we have in Christ. People talk about being compassionate, considerate. They don't wanna hurt other people's feelings. They don't wanna shove something down someone's throat. I'm convinced that what we call compassion has sent more people to hell than hate. Because we don't share the message. 
Don't tell me you love people. If you're not willing to speak the truth to them, that's not love. If you believe God's word is true, then you know there are people going into eternity every day without God, without the hope that you have. Who's supposed to invite them into that relationship with him? We are. That's our job. It's one of the very last things that Jesus commanded us to do. Final instructions. Go out into all the world and tell them everything that you've learned from me. That is how you love people. Not by doing everything you can to preserve their delicate feelings. No, we love them by telling them the truth, by sharing the message of hope that we've been entrusted with, right? In with grace and humility and love and compassion, certainly we tell them about the hope that our souls cling to. It's the very message of Christmas, as the Apostle John said, he became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. It's the very reason Moses said to God, if you're not with us, how will it be that we're distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. We're just like everybody else who's lost without you, God. You understand, that's the only thing that separates us from the rest of the world, the hope that we cling to, the hope that we have in the knowledge that no matter what, God is with us. Let's finish our story for today, verses 31 through 35. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I mean, if it's not enough for a poor village girl from a bad town to hear in one day that God favors you and that he's with you, but the angel goes on to tell her that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, will overshadow her and fill her with his power. Why would you do that? So that she can share that hope with the rest of the world. And that's why if you're a believer and follower of Christ today, God's power is at work inside of you. Just as it was with Mary, so that you'll be able to share the hope that you have with others. And make no mistake about it, I'll just tell you, fighting for the lost is a battle. That's why you need his power working in you, because you can't fight that war on your own. The good news is you don't have to because it has absolutely nothing to do with your power or your worthiness apart from Christ. So when I tell people about Jesus, this happens to me all the time. I'll tell somebody about Jesus and they'll begin to list in their own way all of the reasons why they could never be a Christian. My answer is that's great. You know what? You're every bit as qualified to be a Christian as I am because it isn't about us or our worthiness. It's about him and his grace toward us, even though we are woefully unworthy apart from him. You understand, Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, not of the worthy, which means his grace is available to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. And so as believers, as people who have freely received that gift of unmerited grace, how can we not tell others about it? I mean, how can we possibly keep that message to ourselves when the world is so desperately in need of a hope that it can cling to? The hope that you and I have been given. 
the favor of God that takes us in whatever condition we're in and transforms us by filling us and empowering us with his spirit for a future and a hope that we did not have and do not deserve. That's why he came. That's why he humbled himself and came as a baby to this earth to give us a hope worth clinging to. And so my prayer for this Christmas season is more than just us celebrating the hope that we have in Christ, as good as it is, my prayer is that we take this time to share it with those who have no hope to cling to. Those are still lost, still wandering, still clinging to this world that we'd introduce them to the hope that transcends this world and anything it could ever do for them. To tell them about Emmanuel, who came in the most unpredictable, unexpected, humiliating and yet unbelievably profound way. My prayer is that we tell people about Jesus so that after tasting all that this world has to offer, they would cling to something truly worth hoping in. My prayer for them and for us this Christmas season is for the cry of our hearts to echo that of David's. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Let's pray.